911, what's the nature of your emergency? Welcome back to the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton. And in today's episode, I'm pulling in another live interview that we did inside of our Police, Fire, and Military and Families Facebook group, where I had the opportunity to interview a neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Mark McLaughlin. And he wrote the book called Cognitive Dominance, and it's a brain surgeon's quest to outthink fear. And during this interview, he shares with us ways for us to all adapt and to be able to better enhance our own cognitive dominance. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, police, fire, military, and families. I am so excited for today because I have dove my head into this book. It took me three days to read, and now I am sitting in front of its author, Mr. Dr. Mark McLaughlin. How are you? I'm doing great, Ashley. Thanks for inviting me on. So the reason that I had you on the show is actually we connected and you showed interest in coming on and just sharing a little bit of your wisdom. And I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. I worked in the pediatric field for 13 years and know how difficult it is to carve out time. And I can only imagine how difficult it is when you are a brain surgeon. So I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your time with us. It's my honor to be here. So, Doctor, if you don't mind, can you just walk us through a little bit about your origin story and your background? Sure, sure. I'm um, I'm originally from New Jersey, and I was a wrestler as a young boy, uh, but I always wanted to be a doctor. I used to remember the black bag. My grandfather, I used to carry his black bag on house calls, and I wanted to be just like him. So uh, along the way, I went to uh, college at William & Mary and then ultimately medical school and got the chance to achieve my dream. Uh, but I also wrestled through college too. So it was really this kind of interesting dichotomy. There's not a lot of wrestlers in medical school and, and then even fewer in neurosurgery. In fact, the only other one I know is one of my partners. So um, I've had this kind of upbringing of, of both um, the intensity and the physicality of wrestling. And now, now I'm a coach. That's why my voice is hoarse today. I was coaching all weekend. And the technical and you know, micro elegance of neurosurgery. So it's, it's been an interesting pathway. But for me, they're very much alike. And, and in fact, I, you know, I chose neurosurgery because it's, it's just exactly like wrestling to me. It's, it's high risk. It's super intense. It's personal. And, uh, it's, 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 I just love it. That's awesome. So as I went through your book, I couldn't help but notice how many parallels there are with the modern term of, um, really just cognitive balance. And you have this concept where it's brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. Can you explain to everybody a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, you know, ever since our, you know, our, we, we evolved many, many years ago, uh, we've had these safety mechanisms built into our nervous system. And the first one was really the, the fear mechanism, the, the ability to jump away from dangers. Um, Charles Darwin talked about this in the snake response and how he went to, uh, he went to the, the zoo and he knew the poisonous snake was behind a glass. But when the snake jumped at him, he jumped back. And he realized that this was something that was innate, you know, hardwired into our nervous system. And, um, and, and that's an important part of our nervous system because it, it helps preserve us 
Um, but I, what happens as we evolved is um, all of these operating systems from the past are still running in our brain. And we have brain 1.0, which is this emergency survival fight or flight mechanism. Um, but we also have brain 2.0, which is this the, our neocortex, our executive function that knows that, you know, uh, we're not we're not in a life or death situation in a boardroom. We're not in a life or death situation when we're parenting or we're trying to make an important decision at work and a lot of times. And so it's important to understand that sometimes the old operating system, the brain 1.0 operating system takes over when it really doesn't help us make an important de decision with perspective and intelligence. So how does one distinguish the two in the moment you're you're i mean most of the people listening to this they're in critical situations quite often so how can somebody rectify not being able to get over that primitive makeup sure well i think that's a lot of what, what our training does in in uh in medicine and surgery but also in the police force or in the military um i sort of talk about in the book a little bit about rules routines and rituals um rules are the things that we all learn in our training you know they're they're hammered into our heads like you know for me it's never cut what you can't see uh or always leave a drain or never worry about a patient alone um, or if you're struggling, get more exposure. And these are, these are rules of neurosurgery, but they're also rules of life. You know, they're like, if you can't figure something out on your own, get more exposure, get more perspective, talk to other people. So I follow the rules and then I have routines and routines are just actions that put you into the right mindset. Um, you know, I just finished, uh, uh Tim McGraw's book, Grit and Grace, and it's, he just really articulated it well about how you can't wait for your mood to get things done. You need to start with your actions and then your actions put you in the right mood. And so my routines are really, when I walk into the OR, I tape a, a, a plan sheet on the wall every single time it's got to be there exactly the same spot. Um, I go over the entire steps of the surgery with the staff. I have my own process of my five P's that I pause. I think about the patient. I uh, make a plan. I have a positive thought and I say a prayer. And then I have a few rituals, which are more superstitious, but for me, they help me get in the mode. And that is um, a little action figure that my partner gave me. My other wrestling uh, neurosurgeon partner, Matt, gave me, uh, it's an action figure of Dan Gable, who is one of my wrestling idols. And I keep him with me because he's kind of like my little, he's always in my corner. I got the coach, I got coach Gable in my corner. And, uh, and there are, so there are things that I do that I know they're on, they're not rational, but they help me and they get me in the mode. So those are the kinds of things that, that, that sort of, you know, take on what we need to, 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 to face an unexpected event. But then sometimes we, we've got our training, we got following our rules and our routines and our rituals, and then something unexpected happens. And that's really kind of what I focus on in the book because we're all on this, on this process in our life from where we are to where we want to be. Um, and along the way we get thrown events and these, these unexpected events are what evoke fear. And it's sort of Pavlovian goes a little bit back to brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. It's Pavlovian in that there's a stimulus, which is this unexpected response uh, event. And then the response, which is fear, but it's not the solution, uh, to the situation. We need to focus on what's the solution. Fear is just the alarm bell. So what I point out in the book and, you know, Brene Brown has done this beautifully too, is fear is, is it's a messenger. 
it's a signpost that says there's something meaningful up ahead. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to it and and get to work on figuring out how not to just turn the fear alarm bell off, but figure out what how do we solve the situation in front of us? Yeah, beautiful. And I know you reference like a fire alarm inside of your book. And I think that all too often it becomes very, very difficult for us to not retreat to that fight, flight or freeze response. So what advice would you give to somebody in order to physically do that in the moment? Right. So, uh, well, uh, just to step back for one sec. So we all have these, we all have negative coping strategies. And, and, you know, I talk about that in my book, some avoidance and try to suppress it. And, you know, we can, we can distract ourselves in so many different ways. So we got to be careful of that. One, identifying poor coping strategies, knowing what they are is very helpful. And then uh, the another methodology that I use is something called the IRISE method. And that's just something that I've came up along the way of like figuring out how to deal with a black swan. So it's a, it's a stepwise an acronym. The first is the I rise is to identify, oh my gosh, this is something I've never experienced before. This is something that's, uh, that it's completely novel and I haven't thought of. We always try and think of everything before we go into a, a situation. That's part of surgery and probably, I'm sure it's part of military and being a police officer or a nurse. You're thinking about that. But sometimes we get hit with a black swan. So we identify the black swan. Then we immediately have to reject. So that's the I is the first letter. R is the second, reject. Reject your initial impulse because it's almost always going to be self-preservation. It's going to be run. It's going to be get out. It's going to be tell a white lie. It's going to be something to protect you. And that's almost always the wrong response. Then uh, the the third letter, the I again in the rise, that's really kind of inventory. That's where you can... um, assess your resources, circle the room, talk to experts around you. You have, if you have somebody with you, your partner, somebody, have you seen this? Have we, have you seen anything like this before? Try to get as much, as many perspectives as you can. And then uh, stabilize is the next one. And that's basically figure out a way to buy just a little bit of time. And in the story of Oksana, in the, in the book, we bought time with trans blood transfusions that bought us a few minutes to think about what to do. And then lastly, reevaluate. Once you have that stabilized uh, situation stabilized, almost always you can reevaluate, evaluate the situation from a different, clearer perspective and approach it with a, with a, a few more options. So that's the I rise protocol that I talk about in the book. Hmm. I love that. Doctor, I've had the opportunity to study under Dr. Mark Atkinson out of the UK, and he's all about mindfulness. And you speak to the effect of cognitive dominance, and we refer to that in military terms. But I'm just wondering if you can break it down for us a little bit on how we might be able to improve our own cognitive dominance and how we go about doing that. Sure. And just to define it, cognitive dominance is enhanced situational awareness that facilitates rapid and accurate decision-making under stressful conditions with limited decision-making time. Um, And when I first heard that, uh, I was up at West Point. I was giving some talks and I, I became very intrigued by it. And I thought, wow, I mean, how can I get more of that? And what gets in the way of that? Um, and I'm not sure it's ever 
something that you totally achieve, I think it's it's a it's a true north on your compass that you're gonna you're gonna shoot for. So how do we do that? Well, uh, mindfulness is a very important part of that. I think um, I'm a huge proponent of meditation. I met been meditating since high school. I had a great meditation teacher, a gentleman by the name of Dean Slider who's written a great book called Natural Meditation, which I highly recommend. Um, and it's, a, it's really a, a very straightforward way of approaching um, how, how, to, how to get yourself into meditation. Another great book that I've read that I, I'm a huge believer in is 10% Happier, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Dan Harris has a wonderful app, um, the 10% Happier app, which I used, I used this morning and I've used for the last couple of years gives you a, a whole plethora of medi- uh, meditations that you can choose from. It's very helpful. So the mindfulness part of it is important. Um, it's understanding that it's, uh, you know, evaluating yourself uh, against yourself over a period of time. I'm much better now than I was years ago. Uh, for I'll give you a good example. You know, uh, I talk about this in the book that every once in a while when I'm, when I'm weak or I'm tired or something sets me off, I, I fall into my arrogant neurosurgeon mode, which, you know, I think everybody has their arrogant professional mode sometimes, you know, I know what's going on and I've been doing this 20 years. And so you just listen to me and do as I say, and then you just, you realize that that's not, you know, winning an argument, you never really win. So nobody wins in an argument. Uh, so it's, you got to focus on cooperativity and you've got to focus on, uh, win-win. And so I become much more aware of that. And when I am tired, uh, or when I've had a couple things, uh, thrown, throw me, throw me for a loop, I'm, I'm constantly saying this mantra to myself, be careful, get your job done today, go get uh, some, some rest and come back tomorrow in a better mind shape. So it's important to be aware of what your weaknesses are and that's how you can work on them. Mm. Doctor, you talk a lot about how you might be sitting at the dinner table with your family eating broccoli and then all of a sudden your phone rings and it goes to this very critical moment where it might seem silent around the table, but to you, you know, there's something that made a complete shift within you. And it reminded me a lot of being married to a police officer where we might be going about our day, but those, those critical moments of that, that initiation of that possible fight or flight response, even if the phone rings and you look at it and you know that it's work calling a trigger happens, what advice might you have as a neurosurgeon in order to be able to combat that and to still be in that moment at that kitchen table? Boy, that's that's a great question and something I still struggle with. Um, I I talk about it with my kids and my wife. I mean, I sometimes will say to them, "Gosh, you know, I I wish I had two bodies. I, I wish that I, you know, I could go do my work and still be with you at the same time." But right now, um, I'm distracted, and I'm sorry. I'm going to do the best that I can, and just sort of narrating that um, is is I think a little bit helpful. Um, you know, Sanjay Gupta, I had an opportunity to interview him for this book and Sanjay talks about this too, that, you know, when you start narrating something, you verbalize it and you share it with people, it, it, you know, it, you have a team approach to it. And so that you can get their perspective too. You know, one time I I remember, um, a baseball game that we were, my whole family was about to go to and we were getting ready to get on the train 
and uh, we're going to go see the Yankees Boston Memorial Day weekend. And we were all excited. And, and then I got a call and I had to not go. I had to stay because it was a patient that um, had some complications I had to go see and I was worried about. And I talked to my son about it years later. And I said, you know, I, I remember this day and we were going to go have this great baseball game and we we're going to be out there. And he said, I don't, I don't even remember that, dad. Mm. You know, I, I remember, I remember when you used to hit baseballs to me in the afternoon now when you got home from work and I was like, wow, that's what he remembers. And I'm looking at it and telling myself a story that, you know, I, I let my family down and, and in fact I didn't, you know, it was, it was something that an important lesson that I think maybe was, was, um, you know, shown to them that, Hey, you, you know, you got an important job to do. And sometimes, you know, people's lives are depending on dad and he's, he or she's got to go take care of them. And that's what we do. That's, you got to do your job. And so I think it's one of those things. So to talk about it, I think is very important. Um, just maintaining lines of communication uh, will keep things healthier, uh, acknowledging it. That's probably been the one thing that's helped me the most. Um, and, and then, and then I, I, one of my uh, mentors had told me, you can, you can function effectively even in the face of failure. Mm -hmm. And, and so you're never going to completely, uh, eradicate that, that, that experience. I mean, um, we live, we work in life and death situations. And so, um, that's something you just have to acknowledge as part of part and parcel of your life at this time. So that's, that's like, you know, accepting gravity. You can't fight it. It's it's always going to be there. So accepting it, talking about it. I think this is probably the two things I'd I'd give as as advice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I am a deep believer in asking selfish questions, especially when given the opportunity. So another one that just came to mind, and I don't have any of this pre-written. I'm just like sucking in your brain right now. Um, so a lot of the clients that we work with, they struggle with compartmentalizing their lives and this leads them down that negative spiral of not being able to check out and actually be at home when they're at home. So is there, you, you talk a lot about mantras and these rituals that you have. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that you do in particular to fully like tune work out to the best of your capabilities in order to open up that front door and actually see your family when you get home. I struggled with that too. For years, I worked on trying to compartmentalize things. And, you know, I, I realized, and I, again, this is with, with uh, help and perspective from other coaches and people I've spoken to. The, there's a, a gentleman I've worked with for years. His name's Ken Davidson. He works for a company called Workability. And he, he turned me on to a term that I really love, and it's called holography. Um, and holography is the belief that any single part of you represents all of you. If like, if you shattered into a million pieces and somebody picked up one piece of you, of you, they wouldn't, they wouldn't find the police officer side of you, or they wouldn't find, they wouldn't find the one, you know, the father, they, they'd see it all in that full piece and whatever piece that was, all of you was in it. And so, you know, the, the lesson to me there was you, you know, you can't, compartmentalize it. It's all part of you. And so embrace it and don't fight it. Um, when I go to wrestling practice, 
I talk about neurosurgery to my kids. I mean, I, I simplify it. I, I, I break it down, but I tell them, you know, if I had a tough day, I'll say, Hey, listen, I had a day today where for a minute, you know, I thought I was in over my head and I, and I heard this voice in the back of my head saying, Hey, I don't, you know, are you good enough to do this? And then I said back to it, of course, I'm good enough to do this. I've trained my whole life to do this. This is the moment in time for me to help somebody. And, and I tell the kids, you know, Hey, you're going to hear those voices your whole life, your whole life. You're going to hear those voices. Don't listen to them. Just go back to your basics, whatever it is in wrestling, it's risk control, controlling the tie-ups, keeping your elbows in. If you follow those basics, everything else will come through. So I, I'm not a proponent of compartmentalizing things. I, I think that it's, you are a, a sum of all the things that you do and uh, takes the pressure off of you. And if you're really thinking about work when you come home, you don't have to share every intimate detail. I mean, I've learned that too. I don't want to tell, uh, I see a lot of sad things happen and unfold in my life. Um, I don't want to share everything with my wife. I don't want her to experience all of that, but I, but I can tell her I, I did. I, I had a sad day today. I'm okay now. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm home. I'm glad I'm in the sanctuary and, you know, let's try and let's try and, you know, do something that'll get my mind off of it. But, uh, but yeah, I had a tough day today. And that's okay because that's that's what you're you know we're we're human beings and you know we can't especially in these professions of you know healthcare and in uh, law enforcement and the military we see things that cannot be unseen we know those things I talk about that a little bit in my book something called terrible knowledge and that's understanding that sometimes the world is it makes no sense at all it can be totally capricious it can be malevolent um and still we need to function and we need to create order out of chaos and that's what gives our lives meaning mm, beautiful so you're this crazy busy brain surgeon how on earth did you find time to write this book well i was i was really uh, lucky because i got invited about 10 years ago to uh, speak up at west point uh, a friend of mine up there who's been the coordinator for the Center for Enhanced Performance for years, Dr. Nate Zinzer, who's a brilliant uh, sports psychologist and performance enhancement coach, uh, has been my friend for years, ever since I was in high school. And um, he invited me up to speak to the cadets about surgery. And, you know, he just said, I want, I'm going to give you three words, concentration, execution, and precision. And I want you to share with the cadets exactly what those words mean to you. And then let them draw the parallels. You just tell them about surgery, let them draw, the, they're very intelligent and they will draw the parallels to what they do. And so I began um, telling them stories and uh, it sort of tickled the artistic bug in me. And I started seeing words and, and seeing all these similarities. So I came across um, casual and I was, I was saying to them, you know, I was saying you can never be casual in the operating room. There's no time to be casual in the operating room. And I began looking up the word casual. It's very interesting. Latin root casus means event. And the word casualty is also related to casual. So then I, I said to them, I said, listen, if I'm casual in the OR, I'll have a casualty. And if you are casual on duty, you'll become a casualty. This is really important stuff. So I began developing some concepts 
And um, I ran into a, a very interesting uh, gentleman by the name of Sean Coyne, who's a, a writer and an editor. And um, I shared some of the stories with Sean with an, an earlier idea of the book. And Sean really helped me um, reorder the stories and um, really make them more compelling. And he helped me create a framework. Um, and then we got going and it just, it really took off. So it was a pleasure to write it. And I was literally waking up at like four o'clock in the morning, getting up. So I have to write this. It just came to me and I have to write this. It, it sort of came from within me. And um, I'm just thrilled to have it done and have sort of a frame around a body of, of, of literature. And it's really helped me. Um, frame my last 20 years in neurosurgery and and 28 with my training uh to to make sense of it and um it, it's been a wonderful experience that's awesome and i do want to bring applaud the fact that the way that this book is constructed it is it is very meticulous and you you're able to lay things out in a way to where you get very deep in the relationship that you had with your father and the way that you construct your stories and then align them with I mean, you go pretty deep. Somebody who isn't a neurosurgeon, it, it took me a, a little bit of time to read and sometimes reread this, but for you to be able to align it in a way to where it was very light at times, but then very informative, I, I really love the balance of the two. So I thank, thank you for you. that. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And doctor, to wrap this up, I know that you do have an online test that people can take. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's uh, the Cognitive Dominance Assessment. And uh, it's about a 10-minute uh, evaluation that you can uh, get on my website, Mark McLaughlin, MD, and that will sort of guide you uh, to see areas of strength and weakness uh, in your cognitive dominance uh, and your ability to assess, you know, rapidly and accurate uh, uh, situations. Um, and it also will give you some feedback on how to get better. And hopefully it'll sort of wet your whistle to the concept and, and how to begin to refine it and incorporate it into your life. Awesome. And I'm going to link that in the notes below in the show notes on the podcast, and then also in the comments here inside of the group. And doctor, I just want to thank you so much for sharing time with me. I know how busy it is. You literally just like told the entire hospital not to bother you <laughs> while you and I were on this call. And I just really want you to know how much I appreciate that. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and I enjoy sharing this information. Thank you.